Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. All thanks and praise is due to God. We seek God's help and forgiveness. We seek refuge in God from the evil within ourselves and the consequences of our evil deeds. Whoever God guides will never be led astray, and whoever Allah allows to go astray will never find guidance. I bear witness that there is no God but one God, alone without any partners. And I bear witness that Muhammad is God's servant and God's messenger. O oh, you who believe, be mindful of God as is God's due, and make sure you devote yourselves to God to your dying moment. Surah 3, Al-Imran, Ayat 84, Allah says, Say, we believe in God and in that which has been bestowed from on high upon us, and that which has been bestowed upon Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and their descendants, and that which has been vouchsafed by their sustainer unto Moses and Jesus and all the other prophets. We make no distinction between any of them, and unto God do we surrender ourselves. My khutbah today is an extension of last month's khutbah where our sister Kadiba Mahin Abbasi examined her childhood experiences trying to make her home life as a Pakistani Muslim mesh with her American cultural influences. She shared her journey with young, into young adulthood and how she was finally able to forge her own personal relationship with God after realizing she didn't have to choose between U.S. culture or Islam that they were never mutually exclusive to begin with. I'm here today to share another perspective on balancing culture and religion by expressing some of my experiences and challenges as a Muslim who is African American. My khutbah is inspired by a negative incident that happened about three years ago as I listened to a khutbah at another Southern California masjid. But before I tell you that story, Okay, I'd like to first share a personal story. My father's mother, Alberta Brown, was born in 1890 in Mississippi, and like so many African Americans, her options were limited. As a young woman, she moved to New Orleans and lived in as a domestic worker for a family who had immigrated from Europe. My grandmother was quite efficient in her position which was a euphemism that brought some measure of dignity to the work as a maid. And over several years, she and the lady of the house developed a bond of mutual respect. One day, her employer curiously remarked that Alberta was not at all the way she had imagined colored people to be. My grandmother asked for clarification and was told that when her European family immigrated to the United States, Immigration officials showed them a film to orient them to their new home. So that included, you know, the ideals of U.S. freedom, a reference to the Constitution, the flag, the president, on, and so on. Then the film showed several images of African Americans with the explanation that these are the undesirables of our country. And if you intend to have a successful new life here in the United States, you should avoid these people at all costs. What could my grandmother say? This woman immigrated here from Europe and was taught by the U.S. government to avoid African Americans 
except if she wanted to use one as her maid. I often wonder how many years that film was shown to how many hundreds of thousands of immigrants who had likely never even seen a black person before coming to the United States. Yet, they were initiated into the reality that racism is as American as apple pie. Now, back to the incident at the masjid about three years ago. The imam that day, a well-spoken Muslim, had immigrated from Turkey and was addressing the concept of loyalty. He encouraged the Muslim Ummah, the community, to be loyal and grateful for our acceptance into the United States where he said, we have come to pursue a better life. In my experience, I have found this attitude of loyalty and gratitude to be a common theme among Muslims who have immigrated to the U.S. from other countries. However, I was appalled when the Imam obliviously stated that all of us had come to the United States for a better life, and that Thomas Jefferson was a great man who laid down the principles of freedom for all. When we know that he owned hundreds of slaves. I approached the imam afterward and explained that he was actually addressing the immigrant Muslim population who sometimes do have a divided loyalty, you know, based on Islamophobia, and that he wanted to emphasize to them that they need to be loyal to the country that they chose as their residence. I was well aware of the imam's reasoning and I agreed with him on the concept of gratitude. Still, I had an obligation to express my objection to his all of us statement, which was absolutely untrue because it erased the experiences of many of us in the congregation. African Americans did not come here for a better life, nor did the Native Americans who were already here. After the incident at that mosque, I wrote the Imam and his congregation an open letter, some of which I will share with you today. And that is, Allah instructs us to tell the truth, even if it may be uncomfortable or counter to one's own perceived best interests. And Allah says in Quran, Surah 4, 135, O ye who have attained to faith, be ever steadfast in upholding equity, bearing witness to the truth for the sake of God, even though it may be against your own selves or your parents and kinfolk. Whether the person concerned be rich or poor, God's claim takes precedence over the claims of either of them. Do not then follow your own desires, lest you swerve from justice. For if you distort the truth, behold, God is indeed aware of all that you do. The truth is that this country was built on the brutal land grab and near genocide of the Native Americans and on the vicious African slave system that made the United States the richest country in the world. The common reference to all of us as immigrants seeking the American dream or a better life in the United States is patently untrue. It ignores history, excludes and marginalizes the original people of this land, and attempts to ignore 400 years of chattel slavery of Africans followed by a vicious racist system that Americans must battle to the very day. That is the truth of this country's history. Even though it may be uncomfortable for some to contemplate, 
It is the reality that Native Americans and African Americans have endured since the inception of this country. You can read a few books, The New Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander or Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee by Dee Brown to gain some perspective into why all of us are not here for the proverbial better life. There are currently about three and a half million Muslims in the United States, and 25% of them, about 875,000, are African Americans, many of whom honor the Nation of Islam as their initial introduction into Islam. The truth we are not taught in schools is that African Americans came to this country even before Columbus and have been part of the fabric of this country throughout slavery and its ongoing racism. It is estimated that about one-third of the African slaves who were brought to the Americas were Muslim, but they were forcibly converted to Christianity. And speaking of immigrants, Abubakari II, the monster or king of Mali in West Africa, led an expedition across the Atlantic in 1311 AD. They came from the fabled city of Timbuktu and brought Islam with them to the Americas nearly 200 years before Columbus arrived in 1492. The Muslims of Mali have confirmed that both Nicaragua and Guatemala are Mandinka words. The expedition itself was named Nicaragua. Timbuktu at that time was an incredible center of Islamic scholarship for hundreds of years. Sankare University hosted Islamic scholars from all over the Islamic world, and the famous Jengari Bear Mosque, which still stands, can accommodate 10,000 worshipers for Juma prayer. A proud saying that has come down to us from Timbuktu, that salt is from the north, gold is from the south, but the wisdom of God comes from Timbuktu. That proud saying is because Timbuktu had extensive public and private libraries containing tens of thousands of manuscripts on Islamic jurisprudence, science, and math. Many scholars who came from elsewhere discovered that they were not qualified to teach at Sankore University. In fact, the single largest source of income in Timbuktu was the book trade. Then, with the 1591 Moroccan invasions, the Muslims of Timbuktu hurried and buried their treasured books to preserve their sacred and scientific knowledge. Many thousands of precious manuscripts were taken to Morocco, and only recently have these buried treasures in Timbuktu begun to resurface, over 100,000 of them, and more are undoubtedly still hidden. And there were other immigrants, Muslims, too, this part of the world. The Chinese Navy Admiral Zheng He brought Islam to Central America in 1421 AD, again before Columbus landed in 1492. A well-researched book, 1421, The Year China Discovered America, chronicles the adventures of this Chinese Muslim. The well-known scene in a classic story, Roots by Alex Haley, shows Kunta Kinte's Muslim father in Ghana, in Guinea, excuse me, West Africa, holding the newborn baby up to the heavens and exclaiming, behold, 
the only thing greater than you, meaning God. When Kunta Kinte was captured as a teenager and brought into chattel slavery in the United States, he continued to practice Islam secretly to avoid vicious lashings by the slave masters. And he attempted to escape several times until the slave master cut off a part of his foot and he could no longer run. Other Muslims also continued their prayers as best they could and many fasted. They were known to lead resistant movements because of their Islamic mandate to resist oppression. Small glimmers of Islam continued into the 20th century with the teachings of Noble Drew Ali, the founder of the Moorish Science Temple, and with the teachings of the Nation of Islam under the guidance of the Honorable Elijah Muhammad. And by the way, it was a woman, Sister Clara Muhammad, who first heard the life-giving teachings of Farad Muhammad, who is also known as Muhammad Abdullah. He was an immigrant Muslim who was teaching Islam in Detroit back in the 1930s. She brought her husband Elijah to hear Islam from Farad Muhammad, and that was the genesis of the Nation of Islam. When Elijah was jailed for refusing to register for the draft, it was Sister Clara Muhammad who kept the Nation of Islam going, kept the University of Islam going, and began the MGT, the Muslim Girls' Training. A plaque above the entry to the University of Islam reads, there is no substitute for knowledge. Silence is the next best thing. Hopefully, I can impart impart some knowledge to the Ummah today by the grace of the Almighty Allah. The story of Sister Clara Muhammad's unyielding commitment to perpetuate Islam has been documented in an upcoming book by Haja Dr. Zakia Muhammad, who returned to Allah only a few months ago. May Allah grant her peace and the highest level of paradise. Farad Muhammad also taught Elijah's sons, including Imam Warith Dean Muhammad, who witnessed 2,000 African Americans take their shahada shortly after Elijah died in 1975. From that time to the present, African Americans have embraced Islam by the tens of thousands. African Americans, both Christian and Muslim, marched, protested, were lynched, and abused in unspeakable ways, all to bring a measure of equality to American society. These sacrifices allow various immigrant groups to come here, including Muslims from every part of the world. Many people today are unaware of the historical reality that African Americans live every day, or that the freedoms and wealth in the United States were built upon the backs of African slaves. This unacknowledged history is what brought about the recent Black Lives Matter movement. The sad truth is that some who immigrate to the United States bring anti-black sentiments here from their home countries, either because Africans were historically enslaved in their other countries or because people all over the world first learn about black culture through the American media. And it has a long history of portraying people of color through negative stereotypes. Even today, American mass media exports a very negative image of African Americans all over the world. Trashy language, objectifying women, buffoonish behaviors, 
generic ignorance, the N-word, all these humiliating depictions of African Americans would certainly have a newly arrived immigrant thinking the worst about African Americans. In addition, many people immigrating to the United States bring prejudices with them because people with dark skin are the lower class in their home countries, countries that are still suffering from the aftermath of European colonization and divide and conquer tactics. And when they arrive in the United States, like my grandmother Alberta's employer, immigrants find that someone has deceived them about African Americans and that like all other groups, African Americans are not monolithic. I do not naively think that immigrant Muslims came here to involve themselves in the anti-racist struggles of African Americans. I'm sure most immigrants have their own struggles, just trying to figure out their new culture or escaping religious or racial persecution in their home countries. However, coming to the United States to enjoy the incredible wealth created by African slavery while turning a blind eye to those very people who suffered to make this country so wealthy is insensitive at best and extremely hurtful to those who share that painful legacy. The Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, clearly instructed us, if you see a wrong, change it with your hand. If you can't do that, then change it with your voice. And if you can't do that, at least feel bad about it in your heart. But know that that is the weakest act of faith. Or, as the boys in the hood like to express it, don't diss me. They mean don't disrespect me. Whether you were born here or immigrated here, don't respect the very brutal history that has made the United States what it is today. If you recognize anti-black prejudices in your home, in your workplace, or anywhere within your culture or life, please work hard to shed it within yourself and encourage others to do the same because it is against the very spirit of Islam. There is truly no adequate way to assess the depths of racism and genocide toward African Americans and Native Americans, which is why I took exception that day to the Imam's admonition to be grateful for the freedoms of the United States and to recognize Thomas Jefferson as an honorable man. Thomas Jefferson had over 600 African slaves and he forced his slave girl, Sally Hemings, to have several children. Even so, he refused to free his own children from slavery, even when asked, even on his deathbed. He said no. So, no, Thomas Jefferson is not someone that I, as an African American, can honor. The same is true for George Washington, who also owned hundreds of slaves. In fact, five of the first six presidents of the United States were slaveholders, and this is the source of their wealth and the wealth of the United States. 250 years of free slave labor to build the foundation for the world's biggest economy. My experience at the mosque that day is a classic example of our need as Muslims to get to know one another. As God tells us in the Quran, Surah 49, Ayat 13, O humankind, behold, we have created you all out of a male and a female and have made you into nations and tribes 
so that you might come to know one another. Verily, the noblest of you in the sight of God is the one who is most deeply conscious of God. Behold, God is all-knowing, all-aware. My sisters, African-Americans have an incredible history of excellence in the United States, in spite of all manner of racism and oppression that continues to this very day, and in spite of the deliberately trashy depiction of African-Americans in the mass media. That is true of the Native Americans as well. And no one, including African-Americans, should ever attempt to negotiate American culture without fully acknowledging the incredible history of the indigenous people of this land. As I prepared this kutpa today, I was actually challenged with the term immigrant Muslims. Are all immigrant Muslims included in my open letter to that imam? This imam actually referenced his target audience as immigrants, so there must be some perception of a difference between immigrant Muslims and what African Americans often refer to ourselves as indigenous Muslims. Of course there are differences, because we come from different cultures, different languages, historical circumstances, even different family traditions, even different psychological makeups. Some of us are more outgoing and adventurous. Some of us are more insular. We are not monolithic, neither culturally nor individually. And this is where the tangents became even more complex. Which immigrant Muslims was I addressing? Arab, Pakistani, Bangladeshi, Malaysian, Nigerian, Ghanaian, Malian, Swahili, Chinese, Japanese, Indonesian, Caribbean, Mexican? And who were the indigenous Muslims? African-Americans, Native Americans, Caucasians, Latinos, Asian, I'm sorry, not Native Americans, Asian-Americans? Well, after talking with several sisters of different ethnicities, I was in a quandary. These labels of immigrant and indigenous were rapidly becoming unwieldy and were presenting a false dichotomy. This very quandary is what led me back to the core reality we are all Muslims. Again, we are all Muslims. But we are not monolithic. Allah has made us different so that we can know and learn from one another. All I can do is speak my truth and with the hope that we can all grow to know one another, that we can appreciate our cultural differences and bond as one Ummah in submission to the one God in unity, without uniformity. Allah has made it clear that, that we, he has made us different so that we may know one another. Surah 30, Arun, Ayat 22, Bismillah, in the name of God. And among God's wonders is the creation of the heavens and the earth and the diversity of your tongues and colors. For in this, behold, there are messages indeed for all who are possessed of innate knowledge. The truth is, Muslims are humans. We must all admit to our personal prejudices and work to eliminate them. This is a mandate from our Creator and from our Prophet. Peace and blessings be upon him. I say what I have said. May God forgive us all. Alhamdulillah. 
All praise and thanks are due to God alone. In preparation for this goodbye, I asked several African-American sisters for their experiences, and each spoke to me of their personal journey. Many older adults had embraced Islam as adults. Several had been raised in the nation of Islam and had later embraced Orthodox or Sunni Islam. There truly is no one African-American Muslim experience, but there are some commonalities. All the sisters I spoke to told me stories of other Muslims attempting to fix them, literally touching them without permission to show the proper way to wear their headscarves or to admonish them to avoid smiling and being too friendly with Muslim men. I once had an Indonesian Muslim sister interrupt my focus on a kutbah at another mosque to tell me she really liked me. So that's why she needed to tell me to cover my feet in the masjid. Mind you, I had never ever seen her before, so the I really like you remark was disingenuous to say the least. I marveled at her presumption to disrupt my concentration. Somehow it was haram to have my feet uncovered in her culture, but the universal haram of, take, of talking during the kutbah was okay. So go figure. Many of the African-American sisters I interviewed had stories about Muslims arriving from other countries who were surprised to discover that African-Americans were busily practicing Islam in America. Back then, even though many of us could not recite the Quran in Arabic, we were surprised to learn that many Muslims who had grown up in Muslim-majority countries might be able to recite the Quran in Arabic, but they had no idea what they were saying and what the words meant. Several African-American sisters I talked to did relate occasional tensions with Muslims from Muslim-majority countries who seemed to conflate their cultural practices with Islam. This caused many African-American Muslims to counter, show it to me in the Quran. Or as one sister who was offended retorted, what prophet are you? Several African-American sisters I talked to did relate occasional tensions, but getting to know one another exposed all of us to the false assumptions that crept into the initial connections of our different cultures, and it allowed all of us to see our own blind spots for the first time. I found that the experiences of younger African-Americans who were raised uh, as Muslims was encouraging in many ways. They had Muslim friends and parents who encouraged them to live as Muslims and to, as the Prophet Muhammad said, seek knowledge even in China. Peace and blessings be upon him. That meant socializing with boys, going to parties, wearing fashionable but modest clothing, going to their high school prom, and ultimately choosing Islam as their lifestyle as they entered adulthood, all without the harsh pressure that could have driven them away from Islam. Quran 3, Ayat 159, Allah says, God addresses the Prophet Muhammad directly in the Quran, and it was by God's grace that you, O Prophet, did deal gently with your followers. For if you had been harsh and hard of heart, they would indeed have broken away from you. And this was following the Battle of Uhud. The young people that I spoke with told me about having non-Muslim friends 
who were mutually respectful and accepting of their Islamic customs, even though they did have to explain some things. No pork, no alcohol, modest clothing, don't smoke, no church on Sunday, no Christmas, no Easter. There was initial curiosity, but they found that an explanation wasn't needed as time progressed because they grew to a place of mutual respect. In other words, they had gotten to know one another, exactly what Allah has ordained for Muslims and for all of humanity. These young Muslims also spoke about not being interested in the strictness of other Muslims. They just didn't want to hear it. That included the headscarf as not being the arbiter of who was a good Muslim. Now we have two Muslim women in Congress. 50% of them wear a headscarf and 50% of them don't. That's a pretty good indication of the right to decide how a woman chooses to practice Islam since there is no compulsion in religion. There were a few bumps in the road, of course. My daughter, Makeda, had a huh moment when a young man wanted to take her to her high school prom and his parents would not allow it. He expressed his disappointment to me as well. His parents thought that as a Muslim, Makeda was a hate monger and a Jew killer. Huh? Instead, she had two prom escorts and both of them were her diaper buddies, the sons of two of our very uh, close family friends. Another frustrating, perplexing moment was when Makeda went away to a historically black college and university, uh, what we call HBCUs, and this was in Texas. This was in the Shonuf Bible Belt. She was only 17 and the instructors tried to fix her because she wasn't Christian. The department head told me twice in a long phone conversation that no, 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 he did not have any problems with her being an atheist. Twice from a 60-year-old college professor. She transferred out after that year. After that, Makeda and I had a discussion about the all-pervasive challenge of not drinking alcohol. Well, she had danced from age two onward, so music and dancing were just a part of her. She had a non-Muslim girlfriend who was a DJ, so off to the parties they went. She always knew not to ever drink from a punch bowl or an already open bottle because the dangers of people lacing them with whatever drug. Sometimes she would order a non-alcoholic margarita or a Shirley Temple as a way to keep down the question about you mean you don't drink at all? Well, I recently heard something very beautiful from my daughter, and I have to share it with you. She said that she was grateful for the way that she was raised as a Muslim, with exposures to a variety of people and experiences, and that she was encouraged to find her own path. The pinnacle of this discussion was when she said, that's why I gave myself the gift for my 30th birthday of reading the entire Quran, footnotes and all. Alhamdulillah. And she is now encouraging my granddaughter, her niece, to read the Quran. Again, Alhamdulillah. Makeda expressed to me that she felt she had had the best of both worlds, Islam and the freedom to live Islam on her own terms. 
And if she felt that freedom was the result of being in the United States where the society was not so strict about religion. Several young Muslims I talked to acknowledged that Southern California had a much more flexible culture than the rest of the United States, and it made practicing Islam easier. That the culture of the women's mosque, which has provided a safe place to be their own selves, helped, and under the guidance of Islam, they felt they could grow. I have to share with you, after all these years of study, the more I learn, the more I realize there is so much more to learn. I have to continue to seek knowledge in China. As a Muslim, I have to continue including the knowledge and sharing with my Muslim sisters from other cultures, and they must learn about African Americans as well. But no matter what our cultures or even our personalities, we are all Muslims. In fact, that was the umbrella response from each of the African-American Muslims that I contacted, that African-Americans are Muslims and are quite well-versed in Islam, quite adept at negotiating this sometimes hostile culture in the United States. We don't need anyone's approval or acceptance to be real Muslims that each of us must walk in our own truth as we've embraced Islam or have been born into it, that we will continue to seek knowledge even as far as China. I'd like to conclude with a reading from the last sermon of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. And these are his words. All humankind is from Adam and Eve. An Arab has no superiority over a non-Arab nor does a non-Arab have any superiority over an Arab. A white has no superiority over a black, nor does a black have any superiority over a white. None have superiority over one another, except by piety and good action. Learn that every Muslim is a brother or sister of every other Muslim, and that the Muslims constitute one family. Remember, one day you will appear before Allah and answer for your deeds. So beware, do not stray from the path of righteousness after I am gone. This kutbah was from the Arana Valley, and the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, died about three months afterward. Again, we are all Muslims. If there's anything that you've learned today, that I've learned today, we are all Muslims. That is the reality which Allah taught to all the prophets. God has made us different so that we may know one another, teach and learn from one another, respect and enjoy one another, and be grateful for this greatest of blessings from the one God, that God has made us Muslims and one Ummah, one worldwide body of brothers and sisters. Surah 16, Ayah 90, Bismillah. God commands justice, doing good, and generosity toward relatives, and God forbids what is shameful, blameworthy, and oppressive. God teaches you so that you may take heed. Surah 29, Ayat 45, Bismillah, in the name of Allah. Recite what has been revealed to you of the book and stay consistent in prayer. Indeed, prayer restrains the human from lewd and wicked behavior. 
But the remembrance of God is even greater. And God knows everything that you do. Wa kina asala. Let's perform the prayer. <laughs> 